Do you know why? Because God's Trinity. That's why. The Bible preaches, teaches Trinity. Amen. I am so tired of hearing, and I, I heard it again this week. Ugh. Well, because the Catholics believe it, we can't believe it. That is the dumbest thing I've ever heard in my entire life. The Catholics actually believe that there's a Bible. Are you going to chuck that too? The Catholics actually have some things right. They have just gone off on pontiff nonsense. And Mary, and there's a few other things. But it doesn't make it all wrong. Amen. We have to oh, just Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen. Three persons in one. Abundantly clear in Scripture. Today, I'm excited about today. I'm always excited about preaching the Word of God. I love to preach. This week, I, my wife, she gets it now. She, she was walking by me as I was doing something, and she said, you just found something new, didn't you? I said, yes, I did. She said, it's in your glimmer, your eye, or we'll know what it is, but it's, I get excited. How many of you have ever heard a preaching sermon on Jonah and have never heard the term Jonah preached repentance? How many have heard Jonah re preached repentance? Okay. Every single, every single message I've ever heard, Jonah preached repentance. Where does that come from? Anybody know? If you go to Jonah chapter 1, he talks about repentance, does he not? But here in Jonah chapter 4, God, if you remember last week, God gave Jonah a new message. Do you remember that? Jonah said, or God said, go and preach what I, what I will tell you. And he told him what to preach, and usually in your translations, it'll be in quotations. How many see that? Down like in verses 5 and 6, I'm not even looking at it, but it's around that area. Uh, verse 2, I'm sorry. He tells him to give him a message that he's going to tell him later on, right? Then in verse 4, he quotes, there's a quote around that, and it's assuming that's what God told him to preach. Now, some people are going to say, well, he probably told him to preach more, but hey, when you say probably, don't preach that. Amen? So we have to understand and, and think that, okay, this is what God told him to say. Because it doesn't say anything that he didn't tell him to say, or he's told him to say more. It doesn't say that. But do you see the term repentance in verse 4? It's not there, is it? The term repentance is not there. The only thing that's there is yet 40 days, Nineveh will be overthrown. And it's interesting, I, you know, we know that Jonah was reluctant to do this, right? At bare minimum. But I was, I was told Sunday after church, I said, Pastor, you should look at that again. He cried. Amen. He did. He cried. But let me ask you, what all of us know of Jonah, whether right or wrong, how many of you would get it 
if Jonah loudly cried, uh, 40 days and Nineveh will be overthrown. Thank you. I will turn this off. I'm sorry. Thanks. I don't want that to be a bother. Thank you. I would be so angry when I got done and I'm seeing this thing going around and think, ugh, I just wasted everything. So here's the deal. That's why I asked you, how many have heard Jonah was to go and preach repentance to Nineveh? When you hear preachers preach it, that's all we preach. I've preached it that way. That's all we preach. Why? Because it's found in chapter 1. I get it. The problem is the message changed in chapter 4. Why? I have no idea. But I do know that he didn't preach repentance. He preached, hey, you guys are going to die. And probably under his breath, yeah. Right? Isn't it interesting that immediately, what did Nineveh do? God is absolutely sovereign. <laughs> he will take the worst preacher and they'll be convicted hearts. He will take a stumbling person who can't get the gospel out, yet he changes their heart. He just wants faithful servants. Amen. So this morning, we're going to preach through the whole book, the whole book, the whole chapter, chapter 4. So we get the whole context of this, what took place, why it took place, and what's going on. And Lord willing, we can do our best to not implement our opinions in, but just let the text speak for itself. The Bible says, now the word of the Lord came to Jonah, Jonah chapter 3, verse 1, to Jonah the second time saying, so we know, we know from this verse, and we talked about that last week, God is a God of great mercy, amen? He's a God of God, no matter what the sin, God's mercy steps up and gives sinners another chance. In the case of Jonah, it was given, he was given two chances. As for Peter, he was given multiple chances. And to be honest with you, as for me, he's given me multiple chances. How about you? Praise God for his mercy and grace, amen? No matter our past failures, no matter our past sins, God's gracious mercy will prevail. And it'll be in your face if you're a believer. The hard part is getting past you or me. You know what I mean? He's the one with grace and mercy. He's already forgiven. Have you? You see, the reality is, did Jonah deserve God to give him a second chance? Yes or no? No. Jonah didn't deserve that. Did Peter deserve God giving him multiple chances? Absolutely not. Did Moses deserve God to give him multiple chances? I mean, he's a murdering, he's a, <laughs> I'll put it this way, he's a murdering rock basher. How many understand that? Did he murder someone in Egypt? Yeah. And what was the second thing that God wasn't too pleased with? When he smote the rock. A rock basher. 
He wasn't impressed. Why? He didn't obey God. Did he deserve to give another chance? Was he given another chance? Absolutely. Did he deserve it? No. Did God give it to him? Yes. The same principle comes into our lives because it's abundantly clear. You start in the book of Genesis, you end in the book of Revelation, just about everybody mentioned there falls on their face before God because of sin. But yet God raises them up. Praise God for His grace and mercy. Amen? Verse 2, the Bible says, arise. So now Jonah said, he's going to give him a second chance saying, arise. Now, let me ask you, is that the same message he started with last time? Arise, yes. Why did he have to arise? I don't know, but he just got thrown up by a fish. That's all I can say, right? Arise, go to Nineveh, the great city, and proclaim to it the proclamation which I am going to tell you. Did he give a proclamation right there of what to preach? Absolutely not. He said, listen, I will tell you, basically it's, when you get there, I'll tell you what to say. So God is a God of great grace. Is that not true? God is treating Jonah as if he had never sinned and gives him the Nineveh ministry. Do you see that? I mean, he just totally went against God in chapters 1 and 2. Chapter 1 is the practice of what he just did. Everything was against God. No, no, I'm not going to. No, 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 no. And then chapter 2 is his prayer while he's almost in hell. Or Sheol, sorry. So he's been disobedient. And God is now going to treat Jonah like that never happened. He's going to let him continue in the ministry that he gave him in the first place. How many of you would love second chance? Nobody? We all need second chances and third and fourth and fifth and sixth. And you can count the numbers up to probably three, six, seven, twelve digits. Praise God. God is a God of grace. In this aspect, in this verse, we find very clearly God gave him the Nineveh ministry. Say, what's so big about that? Nineveh is where possibly over a million people bowed their head to God in total repentance. Is that a ministry or what? But Jonah's not remembered about that. Is he? Instead, we have other words to attribute to Jonah that are nefarious. Well, he deserved them. Yep, and so do you and I. But here's, here's, the, here's the little niche in this. Little hitch, if you will. Who gives us the right to call people names when we are guilty of the same stinking thing. And what are we doing when we look at other Christians and flaunt out their mistakes in front of everybody and just destroy them when we have our own issues?
praise God. I had a guy tell me that I went over to his house on Friday night after work, about 7 o'clock. I got in his house, and he's like, uh, I am so glad that I'm not God because I know what I would do with them. How many of you felt like that at one time or another? See, just because all of us had that same idea, oh, I know what I'd do with him. That reveals the pride and arrogance and maybe even the unsavedness of our soul. Because God doesn't do that. No, instead he said, Jonah, now I brought you here. You tried to go on a ferry. I brought you on live fish. Now get up, get over there, and do the ministry I told you. And I will tell you what to say when you get there. It's not that hard. Don't be scared. I will tell you what to do. Now, isn't there a lot of truth in that with ourselves? Has God not told each and every one of us, rescue the perishing? Get up. Give your friend. Give your neighbor. Give your enemy. Give the person that you supposedly hate the gospel. Does he not tell us that in his word? Yes or no? Yeah. You made a mistake? Let's try it again. You don't know what to say? Let's do it again. Man, God is so awesome, isn't he? I get in front of people and sometimes I'm... Right? How many have ever done that? God still can use you. And he wants to use you. You matter to God. He wants to use you. He did Jonah. Remember all the names you have put to Jonah? He still used that guy in a sense greater than he's using you. God also expresses trust in Jonah. He says, Jonah, go to Nineveh, the great city, and proclaim to it the proclamation. Now, it's interesting. We talked about this last week. The Nineveh, the great city, many, it, it was known, and it's important I, I say this now, it was known that it was a great city because of the king. The king made it a great city. Well, that's going to come tumbling down here soon. But the point is, God is sending a person that told him, in essence, no. He's still going to use them in the same ministry. He has trust in Jonah by telling him that he will give Jonah the message he's to proclaim in Nineveh. I'm going to give it to you so you can preach this message. How many know the message we should be preaching to this world? What is it? What is the gospel? That Jesus lived, died, rose, buried, rose again on the third day for our sins. Amen. It's not that hard. We have the message. We know it. But do we deliver it? Jonah now is forced to deliver it by way of whale tram. Did Jonah deserve this trust? 
Yes or no? Absolutely not. Do we deserve God's gracious trust? Verse 3. So Jonah rose and went to Nineveh according to the word of the Lord. Now Jonah or Nineveh was an extremely an exceedingly great city. And as we talked last week, this exceeding great city. How many of you have a, have a, a footnote on that, on that phrase? An exceeding great. I, I talked about it, I preached about it last week, but my Bible does, and every commentary I looked at does. So how many of you have that on your, in your Bible? It's a footnote, number one, letter A or something. Anybody? Who does not have it on there? All right. So this, this text is the anti-text to verse 2 that we just read about great city. This is the exceeding great city, or it's the great city of God is the idea. City of God. God has the, Elohim is the word in there, by the way. If you, read, if you, read, if you were to read it in the Hebrew, Elohim is inserted in there. How many understand that? Now, Elohim, how many know what Elohim is? Elohim is the word for God, right? The problem is Elohim is what? Plural, so it could be to the gods, as we talked about last week, or to God. I'm taking it as this is God's realm. He brings up people, and here's why. Here's why. Nineveh was one of the greatest cities of antiquity. It was a God-made tool to be used for His glory. Amen. How do we know that happens? It was a vast city. It was one of the greatest cities of antiquity. An architectural marvel city. Most importantly, this was not Sennacherib's city, and that's what God's saying here. This is God's city. God's city. He's the one that's going to use it. He's the one that raises it up and judges them. How do we know that? Because only God raises and judges the nation. It is not because of we the people are we still alive. It's because he is God and we're still alive. Do we understand that? The Constitution is not going to separate us or keep us from eradication. God and God alone will do that if he desires. So it's not man's made thing. This is God, and he's going to use it in a great way. How do we know that? Psalm 22 to verse 28. For the kingdom, for the kingdom is the Lord's, and he rules, rules over the nations. He makes the nations great and destroys them. He enlarges the nation, then leads them away. Psalm 46. Job 12. He makes the nations great, then destroys them. He enlarges the nation. He leads them away. Hmm, just heard that. Do you think this is an important truth? Listen, there is no president that should overtake God's presence and his priority. Like it or not, our hope is not built on Biden, Trump, or anybody other person's name. Our hope is in the Lord and in Him alone. Isaiah 41.2, who has aroused one of the east, who calls him in the righteousness to his feet. He delivers up the nations before him and subdues kings. He makes them like a dust with his sword as the wind driveth the chaff with his bow. 
God's sovereign hand grows, destroys, and controls all nations. This truth must be understood in the times that we live in today. I think it's very, I love, okay, I hate what's going on today, but I love what's going on today. The reality is, Israel still is this. The Jews still exist. Why? Assyria, Babylon, Egypt, Hitler, you can go on. <clears throat> America's colleges. And you can go on and on and on and on of the people that want to eradicate and destroy the Jews. That hasn't happened and it won't happen until God says, you're done. You are now my kingdom people, and all the Jews are saved according to Romans. Jonah obeys, and he heads for the ministry in Nineveh. The Bible says this is a 3D journey in there, and we will talk about that shortly. Verse 4. Then Jonah began to go through the city one day's walk, and he cried out and said, Yet forty days and Nineveh will be overthrown. God uses less than perfect people. He uses sinners. Amen. Is Jonah a less than perfect person? Is he a sinner? He was used... He was the catalyst. He was the guy that God used to see possibly millions trust in God, as the text says. But this text tells us that Jonah, if, if all this is literal, that Jonah only did part of the job. He spent one day on a three-day job. And if you do the math, how many love doing math? That means he didn't even get halfway to the city, through the city, right? That means he got one-third of the way. Very good. Yet he certainly cried out. And what did he cry out? Say it with me here. Read what the text says. He cried out that Nineveh was to be what? Overthrown. How many have read that? Is that what it says? Nineveh is to be overthrown. Jonah did, he certainly cried out that it was to be overthrown. Something the whole book of Jonah alludes to. By the way, we all tend to read words into the text from other verses or sermons or teaching sessions, but reality is, who told the Ninevites to repent? Who told them to? I would, get, I would dare say even the greatest preachers in the world, you can go to them and ask them, hey, just out of the blue because they're probably not in Jonah and they're in another book. Who told the Ninevites to repent? Who would they say? Jonah. Is that a lie? It is. Jonah didn't tell them to repent. Oh, no. Everybody has this idea of why in the world did Jonah then, why, why, did, he, why did he do this? Well, look at what he says to do. In 40 days, you're going to be overthrown. Of course, he doesn't like them. He wants them overthrown, does he not? 
so he's, he's, he's not excited to be there, but the message isn't so bad. Now, if he were to tell them to repent or the Lord will overthrow them, would that be a different story? But God doesn't tell him to do that as far as we know from the text. And by the way, that's as far as we can go with the text. And what happened? What happened when Jonah told Nineveh that you're going to be overthrown? In 40 days, you guys are going to be overthrown. Guess what? In 40, within a day, they were overthrown. So what are you talking about? Let me ask you, were they spiritually overthrown? Did God take sovereign control over their hearts? Then the people of Nineveh believed in God. Well, he didn't even say anything about God. Do you notice that? He didn't give them the gospel. He told them, you're all dead. And I'm going up there, and we're going to see this next week, and I'm going up there to watch the fireworks. Because you're an enemy of Israel, my enemy. The people of Nineveh, verse 5, believed in God. And the people, right? This is all about the people. No one else is saying this. This is the people. How many understand this? You can't say the people did this and then Jonah told them to fast. Jodom told them to sackcloth. Jodom told them to believe in God. None of that's true. The people of, the, of Nineveh believed in God, the text says. The people of Nineveh called a fast. The people of Nineveh put on sackcloth from the greatest to the least of them. But it was the people of Nineveh, amen, who told them to repent, who told them to believe in God, who told them to put on, a, to, to be fasting, who told them for sackcloth, who told them any of that? There's only one person that could have told them that, God in their heart, amen? So let me ask you this, just for a second, if God worked in the heart of all Ninevites that they believed in God. They fasted and they sat in sackcloth and ashes. In essence, they absolutely repented. <laughs> in a second, we're going to find out what they repented of. But they did. And they used what many people call a putz to do that. then what is your excuse? Amen? I mean, we're the ones throwing things at Jonah like he's some second coming of Satan and pointing fingers at him. But yet God used him to do the, have the greatest influence of the world's ever seen when that many people come to know the Lord. And if God can do that with Jonah... He certainly can do it with us that have the whole Word of God at our disposal. Amen. God's grace and mercy 
seen in the most wicked of all the world. This was the armpit of the world. This was the Satan's den of the world. This was a horrible place. And the whole world knew it. If the whole world didn't know that, why are all the history books saying the same thing about the same people? Why does archaeology say the same thing? Showed, I showed you the archaeology up here. Horrendous, wicked people. But God's grace and mercy was bestowed on them. How many say God is awesome? Despite their shortcomings, and despite the shortcomings of the prophet, and of his delivery of the message, the oracle, the oracle's effects were immediate and impressive. Were they not? Forty days, you're going to be overthrown. That's all he said, for all we know. And what happened? Oh, just a million people repented. And here in America, we have a hard time finding one to repent. The men of Nineveh did what? The people of Nineveh, not just the men, they trusted God. And that recalls the exemplary faith of Abraham. Now, many commentators say, well, well, hold on, hon. We don't know that they were saved. We don't know that they truly believed in God. Well, listen, the text says they believed in God. They trusted God. And not only did they trust God, but they showed that they were truly humbled, did they not? They trusted God. It recalls this idea of Abraham, which Mr. Pierce read this morning. Abraham believed God when? Before he was circumcised, right? 14 years to be exact, but before he was circumcised. So it's not the circumcision that changes a life. Amen. It's faith. And, and I'm telling you, there is, by the way, this, this is where it gets, where the rubber meets the world, this is a big deal. There are people today that are adamant. Matter of fact, I was asked not too long ago, would you infant baptize my children? I said, no. They cannot know faith. When they can know faith, absolutely. But they don't know faith. Well, you don't understand. Well, what do you mean, I don't understand? They need to be baptized. They need to be brought into the covenant. Tell me, I asked them, I said, well, what about Abraham? Well, that's different. What about the Philippian jailer? That's different. What about Acts? That's different. What do you mean? I get frustrated. Faith is what brings us to a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. It's not circumcision. Here's the deal. Circumcision has now been replaced by baptism. Baptism does not save. This is quite interesting because we had a quite lengthy discussion. And another friend of mine said, well, 
who's, who's responsible for their salvation? The parents are. How many think this is way out of bounds with Scripture? Here's the reality. That's coming to a church near you. Because it is on the rise and it is a not a good thing at all. Why do you think Peter was encouraged by himself probably, but encouraged to write the book he wrote? It's a big deal and it is huge. Here's the deal. How many remember this thing called COVID? No one remembers? <laughs> During COVID, everybody was stuck in their home. There were three men that did everything they could to put as many uh, YouTube videos out of their theology as they could. Why? So that all these people sitting at home not being able to do anything could watch them. And it has totally changed America, I'm telling you. Doug Wilson is one of them. Dr. White is another one. Those are the two guys that were off on a thing. That's their goal. That's their mission. And there's another one. I'm telling you, be careful. Be careful. And, and I'm, I'm, I'm sure you've heard this before in a commercial. Let's go back to what the early Christians thought and said. Let's go back there. Do you know what they're talking about? The Puritans during the Reformation age. Do you know what they believed in? Infant baptism. Every one of them. What did that do? Brought them into covenant. Today, it's all understood. It saved them. You can go ask a hundred Lutherans what, 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 their baptism, what their salvation is based on. They will tell you, first and foremost, what? Their baptism. Not all of them. Some of them truly understand that it was my faith in Jesus Christ that saved me. Praise God for that. These people, now maybe these commentators that I was reading were, were covenant theologians and they didn't get circumcised or they didn't get baptized so they're not believers. I don't know. That's, I, I'm just saying that facetiously. The point is, these people believed they trusted in God. Amen? They trusted in God. By the way, how did you get saved in the Old Testament? In what or who? Trusting in God that He would do what He said they would do. They trusted God. That's how you were saved in the Old Testament. How are you saved in the New Testament? In a sense, you're saved in trusting God did what He said He would did, right? Jesus dying on the cross, amen. They didn't get saved by believing in Jesus because they didn't know who He was. But they were saved by trusting in God. Folks, I am convinced this generation of Ninevites truly trusted God and were His people. I truly believe that. Now, a hundred years later, that's two generations away, right? They turned their back and they did God's bidding, but they were then wiped out. 
wiped out. Regardless, they trusted God, just like Abraham did. Romans chapter 4 deals with that, and we just read it. That comes from Genesis chapter 15. It's also in James chapter 2. It's also in Galatians chapter 3. Do you think it's important? Abraham believed in God, and it was counted for him as righteousness. Amen. It was reckoned to him as righteousness. He was called a friend of God. So these people trusted in Christ God. Then what did they do? They what? We trust in God. Let's go celebrate. Bring out the fatted calf. Is that what they did? Why? Because this is exactly what believers do. They recognize, and by the way, this idea that repentance means a change of mind, that is true in a sense, but it's much more difficult than just that simple sentence. Because here's the deal. You recognize that your sin is an offense of God and you hate it. Amen. Now, you might not know all the sin, and you don't know all that. But you think differently about sin also. You think differently about Christ, and you think differently about sin. Because reality, sin was your God before Christ. Amen? But these people, what did they do? They fasted. Why? Why did they fast? What does that mean? We have to look back in Scripture and find out different people that God used that fasted. God fa or Daniel fasted and prayed. Though he says this in Daniel, So I gave my attention to the Lord God to seek Him by prayer and supplication, by fasting, sackcloth, and ashes. Oh, does that sound familiar? Fasting and sackcloth many times go hand in hand. And according to biblical dictionaries, fasting in the Old Testament Apart from the Day of Atonement, fasting is absent from the Pentateuch, but it appears throughout the rest of the Old Testament. Fasting is frequently performed along with other practices of mourning, lamentations, penitence. It is often conjoined with prayer. At times, fasting functions as a preventative measure prior to engaging in dangerous activity, such as a journey or a battle. In the Old Testament, people often would tear their clothes, dress in sackcloth and ashes as they fasted. That's not only found in Jonah chapter 3, verse 5 here, but it's also in 2 Samuel chapter 1, Daniel chapter 9, Esther chapter 4, and that's just some of them. Such activities mark the participants as being in a lowly state and indicate weakness Fasting is a means of physically lowering of oneself. Youngblood, one of my favorite authors on the book of Jonah, states this, A remarkable effect of the citywide fast is that it removed all external indications of status. I don't know if you saw this or not, but they were showing videos. Hamas was taking videos of their nastiness and sent them to maybe their families, I didn't hear that, but to the, 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 um, the press. Why would they do that? They can outdo each other's wickedness. That's exactly who Nineveh was. That's who they were. And now, 
Now they are on their knees. They are in sackcloth. And that, what is a sackcloth? How many love uh, um, potato bags? Wouldn't you just love a cuddle with them? They're so smooth and soft. They're horrendous. They hurt. They scratch. They, they give you hives. And they usually smell like rotten potatoes. But regardless, they're gross. They're nasty. And they take off their warrior gowns. Their brutal, sacrificial gowns of their enemy. And they put on these sackcloths and they lay in ashes as they fast. I will tell you this, and Youngblood, I love what he says here. Everyone was humbled. And everyone was clothed in sackcloth. God affected an overthrowing, did he not? He overthrew the people. The Gentiles of great wickedness trusted God. Why does God change the hearts of these people of ruthless wickedness? Why does he do that? Why did he, why? Can, can, how many can feel like Jonah? Why would you do that? What would happen today if Hamas totally repented and they're sitting all over the country of Gaza, what's left of it, and they're in their ashes and they're humbled before God and they're praying to Almighty God, not Allah? Would our hearts be, kill them? If I had a wife that was brutalized like what happened there, I would have a hard time not saying kill him. Regardless, why does God save the most wicked? And he did here with Nineveh. Why? To show his great glory and mercy. Humility becomes those whom God changes. Did God change the Ninevites? Were they humbled? Yeah, absolutely. Verse 6. When the word reached the king of Nineveh, he arose from the throne, laid aside the robe of him, robe from him, covered himself with sackcloth, and sat on the ashes. Why in the world? What that just was said. Yeah, but it's important because... All the people are already doing this. God brings these people, these boastful, arrogant, wicked, evil, devilish people, He brings them to their knees. And then He brings, according to the way the text is written, He brings the king to His knees. This is another clue to Jonah's partial preaching in Nineveh, is this verse. The king heard of what the people were doing after the people were already trusting, fasting, and sackcloth, right? That had already happened. It was happening. He's, oh, what, what's going on? Not only did God bring the people to their needs, He brought the king off His throne. He brought him off the throne. Who do you think you are? 
I am Yahweh. I am Elohim. I am God. And God literally pulled him off that throne. Actually, he willingly got off the throne. Why? God changed his heart. God changed his heart. The true ruler, God, humbled the most powerful ruler in Nineveh. So how did the king act? He got off the throne. Why? Because there was someone greater than him, royal authority, God Almighty. Amen. He laid aside her robe, his robe. He stripped himself of his wealth and his prestige. How many get that? He didn't come down and say, now, now you guys get the bad ashes. Those are from cats. Yeah, I get the good ashes from the you know, cows. He, he didn't do anything like that. The text says he, he threw himself down and he fasted and he put this on him. He took off his vestiges, put it on the sackcloth and sat in ashes. Not only did God bring the people to their knees, he brought the king down off his throne. He brought the robe stripped off of him, all of his wealth, all of his prestige, as if stripped away. And then he replaced his royal vestiges with a beggar's garment. Who's the governor of California? Gavin Newsom, it would be like Gavin Newsom going to the tent villages and wearing their clothes and sitting with them. When's that going to happen? How many see this? That's exactly what's taking place. He, re, he, he, lays aside, he gets off his throne. He lays aside his robe. He replaces his robe with a beggar's garment. He left the comfort of a palace bed to an animal's den. He sat in dust. How many of you love sleeping on the floor or on the ground with no pillow or anything else for that matter? I've tried doing that during elk season. I go up on a mountain, put a tarp over me, and try to sleep on the ground. Ugh. It is so hard. And then every noise you hear is a grizzly bear, right? Saying, oh, taco. <laughs> Regardless, this king of the greatest city in Assyria at that time is laying in dust and dirt, dressed in sackcloth, not eating anything. So after God dealt with the king, verse 7, he says, Then the king issued a proclamation, a little late, but he did. And it said, In Nineveh, by decree of the king and his nobles, do not let man... Beast, herd, or flock taste a thing. Okay, it's one thing to fast for yourself. But try to keep a, a bunny rabbit from eating corn or greens. Beans, for that matter, right? 
Try to get a lizard not to eat a fly. Try to, whatever. All the beasts were not to eat anything. How many say that's impossible? That's a full-time, extra full-time job. You can talk to Lisa about this because she has horses and she's with them all the time, sorry, or a lot. And so you'll see, she knows exactly what's going on with them. When they're hungry, they're going to eat. If they break the fence down, they're going to eat. <laughs> I have a cow. I have three cows. I'm trying to sell two. Regardless, these, this cow, I have welded cast iron steel fences that they can't get out. Do you know what they do? They break the, they literally break the welds on the steel fences to get out. Because they want that fresh, I can't imagine what this would have been. Could you imagine what that's like? Keeping them from food. I, I, I don't, I don't, I can't wrap my head around all this because it's insane. Do not let, let the man eat. Okay, I get that. Don't let the beast eat. The herds or the flocks taste anything. Then it gets worse. Do not let them eat. What? What does it say? Or drink. I mean, this, this guy's serious. Is he not? Now, to a rancher, a horse lady, or someone who knows what's going on with this, it's like, that's insane. That's how serious he is about obeying and being humble to God. That's impressive. He goes on in verse 8, but both man, because 7 through 9 are together and then 10 is kind of by itself, so we'll go 7, 8, and 9. <clears throat> both, but both man and beast must be covered with sackcloth. So not only can they not eat, and they've got to keep their animals from eating, they also have to keep them from drinking, but they also have to cover them in sackcloth. Do you see, there? he's going way over and above and beyond. Because why? He is absolutely, totally destroyed. He is absolutely humbled. And let men call on God earnestly. Why is he doing all this? Now, eight and nine tell us very well why he's doing it. Look what it says. Call on God earnestly that each may turn from his what? Wicked way and from the violence which is in his hands. That's all this town was known for. Wickedness and violence. They know they are wrong in their wickedness and violence. Do they not? We're, this is happening because we're so wicked and violent. I will, I will tell you this. Jonah knew they were wicked and violent. We are a horrible people. Verse 9 tells us maybe the motivation. 
If we repent, if we humble ourselves, be contritious, be contrite in our, our actions and starve ourselves, if you will, and our animals and everything and say that this shows that we're serious. Who knows? God may turn and relent and withdraw his burning anger so that we will not perish. In other words, he's saying, listen, God is the standard. We stink. We're horrible people. And God has every right to destroy us. God has every reason to annihilate us. But maybe, maybe if we trust him that he is what he is, says he is, and we believe that. And we're contrite, we realize our wickedness, we realize, and he calls it out what it was, right? We recognize our violence, maybe, maybe he is a God of mercy and grace. Who knows? He may withdraw his burning anger so that we will not perish. The king responded after, verses 7 through 9 tell us that the king responded after his contrition with an edict to all of Nineveh, all living things cannot eat and drink, all living things covered in sackcloth, all men must call on God for mercy. Call on God for mercy. What does that even look like? Why so over-the-top practices were required by the king? What was Nineveh guilty of that was so colossally outrageous and they felt they had to go to such extreme, dire repentance? What was it? They were a violent, nasty, wicked, horrendously evil people. How did God respond to Nineveh? We find in verse 10 what he did. When God saw their deeds that they turned from their wicked way. Then God relented concerning the calamity which he had declared he would bring upon them, and he did not do it. So, God must have been, the open theists are right, right? How many even know what I just said? Probably not. Here's the deal. There are people who believe that God just fixes things. He's going around behind people, behind humanity, fixing what they did wrong. And he's constantly reacting to human behavior. Here's the reality. God is absolutely sovereign, period. So what does this mean to relent? How many think that's an important discussion? I'm bringing my notes up because it is an important discussion. And this is a big deal because we find in Scripture this, that word relent used multiple times about God. They even say God repented. So what does this mean? Since we believe that God is omniscient, since we believe that He is sovereign, what does it mean God relented? Has there been other times in the Bible where it says God relented? If you remember the golden calf. The Bible says that God relented after the people were sacrificing and made the golden calf in Exodus chapter 32. 
The golden calf incident occurred three months after the exodus at Mount Sinai while Moses was receiving the law for the priest nation of Israel. God told Moses that he was putting these stiff-necked people under sin, under the sin unto death in Exodus 32. Same thing comes in Acts 7.51. You stiff-necked people with uncircumcised hearts, and you are just like your father. You always resist the Holy Spirit. Let me ask you, was, was Israel resisting the Holy Spirit? They're absolutely going against God. Moses interceded on behalf of the Israelites when God said, fine, I'm done with you, you're done. I'm wiping you out. Moses said in Exodus 12, or chapter 32, verses 11 through 32, God, don't, re don't forget these are your people. I remember that. You are their God. And do it, it says in 32, 14, so the Lord changed his mind relented. So it's changed your mind in, in, in the NAS. It's relented in the NIV, and it's repented in the King James. So the Lord changed his mind about the harm which he had said he would do to his people. So did he just change willy-nilly? Yes or no? How can you answer this? In order to answer this, you have to have a functional knowledge of who God is. He is omniscient. What does that mean? He knows all. He is omnipotent. He's all-powerful. He is omnipresent. He's everywhere at every time. He is immutable. He does not change. He is sovereign. He is righteous. He's gives eternal life, he's love, he's holy, all of those. And by the way, none of those overtake the other. So many people say, yeah, yeah, yeah. His mercy in that case of relenting, his mercy overcame his justice. No, he's perfect in mercy and he's perfect in justice. There is not one that is left wanting. Amen. We have got to understand that Hebrews chapter 1, verse chapter 6, chapter 13, Psalm 102, James 1, and a plethora of other verses say that he does not same. It does not change. He is always the same. Right? The Lord says, I do not change, Malachi 3. The Lord says in Psalm 110, I will not change his, he will not change his mind. Thou art a priest forever, Melchizedek. We have to understand that those are cemented in the text. So when we come to these words that seem a little off, there's a reason for it. Because we already know he's sovereign and omniscient. Amen. So why is he relenting and repenting? Let me ask you this. Maybe this is the easiest way of doing it. We could go through some very depth, detailed things like anthropomorphism, which you've heard of before. And there's even another one called anthropor... Anthro... I'm going to read it so I don't get it wrong. Uh, come on. Anthropopathism. And I don't think you're ever going to use that term again, so I don't know that it's worth our time. We should do this sometime, though. But the reality is this. 
Before you were saved, were you on your way to hell? What happened? Did you repent and believe? Did God then say, you will be with me in paradise? Is that true? Absolutely true. You see, it's always been true. When people repent, God will forgive. The term forgiven, really. You forgive. What does that mean? I will not do what I was previously going to do, <laughs> right? I forgive that. It's the same term idea. How many understand this? I'm trying to make it really easy to understand. Maybe I'm making it harder. The point is, God does use language for us that we get it. And He's always in the business of forgiving sins. And giving us heaven. If, if what? Repent and believe. Let me ask you, did Nineveh repent? Absolutely. So did he just say, wow, they repented. I guess I'm not going to kill them today. Or did he say, amen. My mercy will be shown throughout the world that these people repent. Listen, if God, so how does that all work? Do you know what I mean? You get really into these deep things. How does that work? If, if God repented, that's, he didn't really repent as we know it. No, he didn't. But he's using language to help us understand instead of going to hell, now it's heaven. Instead of being separated with me forever, it's with me. Why? Because you repented and believed. So let me ask you, every time, could it be said that every time someone repents and believes, God relents of sending them to hell? Yes or no? Yeah. In that language, absolutely. Absolutely. The point is God did not change his mind. Is this all in God's sovereign plan? Yes or no? Absolutely. Both are equally true. The problem is these words, repent, relent, they have this, like they were sinning before or something, because we put it in our context. Well, guess what? God is not in our context. He is God. He is a one-off, if you will. He is different. He is unique. He is holy. He is set apart. And when God's saying he relented, He's saying to you, listen, you can get that. You get that understanding. I am no longer sending you to hell. I will, you will forever be with me in paradise. That's what I'm telling you so that you can understand that. Does that make sense? Now, we can take a whole class period, and frankly, we could take hundreds of them to explain this. The reality is you will get to a point coming all the way down to understand it. It's like, okay, can you explain God? How many get that? I will say, God never has ever changed his mind. He knew from before the foundation of the world that you were going to be his. And that is his plan. But there was a point in your life where from your point of view, you were on your way to hell. But God saved you. And a direction had been changed. That's forgiveness 
that's relenting, that's repenting, all of that, all those words are there. That's what he meant here. It is not God changed. My God is bigger than that. Amen? Does that make sense? Now, that's kind of seminary stuff, all right? And I know it's a little deep, and I'm, I'm not a sorry for it, but I'm telling you, you should study more on it. And I'd love to give you all the resources I have on it, because it'll help. But from the pulpit with all of you there, I think it'd be uh, deer in a blinders. How does that sound? It, it would be tough, very tough. All right. Listen, I love this passage of Scripture. I, it, I, for some reason, I was like everybody else, thinking Jonah preached to Nineveh repentance. How many of you, that's what you always thought, right? Because everybody says that. Problem is, it's just not true. So it tells us that it wasn't the theatrics of the preacher or the manipulation of the speaker, but it's God who changes hearts as he wills. Amen. Because, just my opinion, if I were there in a Ninevite and I listened to Jonah, he wouldn't impress me much. But God did. So with all of our lives, I pray two things. Number one, let's stop thinking we are any better than Jonah. Number two, God will use you right where you're at regardless of the sin that you have committed in the past. He wants you still to be faithfully serving Him. So you can complain about Jonah not wanting to go all you want, but you have no excuse either. Because Jonah certainly wasn't a polished preacher according to Jonah 3. He was simply a mouthpiece from what God said. Oh, just like us. We're just a mouthpiece of what God has already said in His Word. It's that simple. How many excited about this text now that you... I mean, I, just, I, uh, I get so pumped about it. <laughs> Praise God for books like this. Now, <clears throat> I will say one more thing before we leave, and that is this. Jonah kind of gets a bad rap, although he deserves it in some senses. But he gets a bad rap because the whole book's about him. Or is it? Why isn't it about Nineveh and how a million people came to know the God? Why isn't it about God and His mercy and His glory and His relenting, forgiving, and his second chances. Why? Why is it that Christians, all of us, have a tendency to point fingers at someone we think is maybe a little worse than us? Because that's exactly what this book does. This poor guy, that's all, I mean, he's secluded in this text. You start talking about reading about Peter, just do a life thing on Peter. What a jerk. David? What a moron. I mean, you could do the same, right? But we don't. Because they're packaged in other books, in narratives. It's not 
secluded to this. Oh, but we nailed Jonah. Let's be honest. If we're going to nail Jonah, we better nail ourselves and wake up. Because this world is heading the wrong way. And the reason is, we have not been the salt and light of the world that God has called us to. We've been in our own little corner doing our own little thing, and the world can go to hell for all I care. What a needy people we Christians are. We need some discipline to start being the people God intended us to be. Amen? Mr. Gaiman, can you close in a word of prayer, please? <clears throat> please stand, I'll pray, and we'll be dismissed this morning. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for the example of Jonah. And as we have seen, we have many similarities with Jonah. Father, thank you that you are a God of second chances and you use imperfect people and you are the one that brings people to repentance. Remind us of these truths, we pray in Jesus' name.